Good morning, church. I love that music, by the way. It feels like, like an old Apple commercial. Do you guys remember those? It's like kind of nice, joyful. Yeah. Uh, I'm really excited to be sharing with you all this morning. You know, I've been here for almost three years now at eFree, and I've learned so much from all of you, so much from so many of my, uh, my some of the friends I've made here, the parents I've uh, met here, the students I've met here. And I'm excited to maybe share a little bit with you what of things that God has taught me along my life journey today. Uh, I'm excited to share about some of the things that God has taught me in the areas of what it means to serve. Before I kind of get there, though, I want to share a little bit of a story. I remember one time where I went to a Dodger game with my dad, and you know we wanted to eat before we got into the stadium, because if you've been to Dodger Stadium, then you know how expensive the food is at the stadium. <laughs> And so we decided, hey, we'll go and get some food beforehand. At first, we tried going to this restaurant, this Chinese restaurant called Yang Chow. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. Yang Chow is not really Chinese food. It's kind of like Panda Express executed at the highest level. Uh, some of you guys are thinking, isn't Panda Express Chinese food? Kind of. <laughs> it's kind of like how Domino's is Italian, but you know, it's another thing. But the line was just way too long. So it's like, okay, like our first option didn't work out. First, Yang Chow didn't work out. We'll find something else. And then my dad thought, you know, there's a sandwich place I used to go to called Philippe's. Let's go to Philippe's for the Dodger game, right? And so we decided to go to Philippe's. And as soon as we got there, it was a line of about like 15, 20 people deep out going out the door. And, you know, and so we thought like, oh, what did we do? You know, this is already our second option. We want to make sure we get to the game on time. And we decided, you know, we're going to spend more time trying to decide a third place than waiting in line. So let's just wait in line and do it, right? And the line moved relatively quickly. And we noticed that as we were in line at Philippe's, like everyone was wearing Dodger gear, right, too. And so it was really cool. It's almost like this Dodger ritual to eat at Philippe's before you go and get, go to the game. We started kind of making conversation with people around us, like, hey, what do you think about the team this year? Do you think we'll finally win the World Series for once? Which we did last year, right? <laughs> um, by the way, you know, Pastor Tim is an Angels fan, and I think that's an image of how the gospel brings people together, that we could have <laughs> Dodgers and Angels fans, and even our junior high director, Tim Callahan, is a Giants fan. Like, God brings people together. It's so beautiful, right? Uh, and so we eventually got our food. We had the sandwiches, which were awesome and delicious. And we went to the game. Uh, I, don't even, I don't even remember the score of the game or what happened. And I don't even remember even what I ordered, actually. I think it was a French dip, which is kind of what they're known for. But what's funny is that when we tell that story to other people, the thing that we communicate and share is not about the food, not even about the game itself. The thing we talk about is the line. Right? We talk about how long the line was, how it was basically constant from when we got into the line, from when we finally got our food at the front and ate our sandwiches, that the line was just always, always there. And the, what's, because what's really interesting about that experience is that as good as the food was, the line was actually part of the experience as well. So often when we think about food, it's like, okay, food is just the thing that I like, put into my mouth to nourish my body, right? When we go out to a restaurant, there's so much more than just the food itself that's going on. Some of my favorite shows about food aren't just like cooking shows, like, you know, Rachel Ray, where she's like showing you how to make like a Thanksgiving dinner or something. No, nothing wrong with Rachel Ray. Rachel Ray's great. Um, no shots fired here, Rachel Ray. My favorite shows about food are ones that investigate the stories behind food, right? That there's so much more going on than just what's in front of our plate. There's a whole story going on behind that plate. For example, in one show from uh, Anthony Bourdain, who was a, a late food host, right? 
uh, calling it culture. Uh, he was a journalist. He, talked, he was a former chef and journalist. We talked about food, culture, and he was doing an episode on Koreatown. And he's with his friend who's taking him all over Koreatown to these places. And you think that the restaurant he's going to go to is a Korean restaurant, right? It's K-Town. I want some Korean barbecue, maybe. Maybe I want some hot soup on a hot day, which is what Korean people do sometimes. We eat this like boiling hot, scalding soup on a day like today that's 95 degrees. Uh, but instead, he takes him to another restaurant. He takes him to Sizzler's Steakhouse. <laughs> now, that might be kind of interesting for some of you, but if, if you're like me and you have parents who are immigrants, they would say, when, you know, Kevin, when we went out to eat growing up in LA, we didn't go to Korean restaurants to eat food because we would eat Korean food at home. When we were going out, we were going out to celebrate and we're celebrating at Sizzler. Right? So even though Sizzler might not seem that special to you, there is a whole story and experience behind sitting down at Sizzler. Right? Today I want to talk about how serving is actually an act of worship that pleases our God. Because in order, most of the time when we think about worship, we think about our, maybe our awesome worship band here, led by Eddie and William and Nick, and just all the kind of great volunteers and hands and feet that go into leading us in worship. Uh, there's a bunch of other people who do it. It's not just Eddie and William, by the way. I'm sorry if I didn't mention your name. Um, we think about worship in that context, singing songs, opening up the scripture, learning and gleaning from God's word. But when we look in the Bible, worship is actually closely related and tied to how we serve and love our neighbor. Because as the church, we are actually who, are, who have experienced holy transformation in our relationship with our God. We are called then to seek out that holy to seek out that holy transformation for others in the world around us today. We're going to start in the book of Luke this morning and kind of work our way backwards through the books of Isaiah and Leviticus. We're going to be kind of starting in Luke and exploring some of its themes and how those themes are informed by the books of Isaiah and Leviticus. And, you know, I was putting this message together, it kind of felt like I was, I was putting it together, and I thought it made a lot of sense, but as I was putting it together, I thought, you know, this kind of almost feels like a Christopher Nolan movie, because we're looking at themes within themes, like, like Inception, and we're kind of working backwards like Memento. So I hope today's message isn't as confusing as those movies, and I hope you're able to kind of learn something from it, but I'm just excited to share with you ultimately. So if you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 16. We'll have it up here as well. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the, in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If I were to ask you what is Jesus's first sermon, the first sermon that comes to mind is probably not this reading of Isaiah in Luke 4. The first message that comes to mind would most likely be Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, we actually did a series on the Beatitudes not too long ago. It, it, it makes sense. 
The Sermon on the Mount is easily Jesus's most popular sermon. It's his most well-known sermon. But what we see in Luke is that the first sermon that Luke decides to present to us is Luke chapter 4 in his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth. Now, there are slight differences in the orders of events in all of the Gospels, and those aren't errors, by the way. It's important to note that when we see differences in the Gospels, it's not because there are, these are errors. These are slight differences because each biblical author is trying to emphasize a certain point about Jesus, his life, and his ministry. See, both Matthew and Luke are showing the life and ministry of Jesus, but they're emphasizing different aspects, both in his writing, his teaching, his life, and how they're laying those events out as well. See, Matthew is emphasizing Jesus' role as the Jewish Messiah. So he draws a lot of parallels to how Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Like Moses, you know, he's uh, born in the midst of this great kind of like infanticide, right? much like during the reign of King Herod, right? He's baptized in water, similar to how Israel crosses the Red Sea. He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days, like Israel wandering for 40 years. And then at the end of that all, he proclaims the intent and purpose of the law from a mountain, much like how Israel received the law at Mount Sinai. Jesus, Luke, or sorry, Matthew is trying to emphasize that Jesus is the messianic, the messianic figure from the Old Testament. Luke's main point, though, although he is showing how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, his main point is to show how Jesus is the Messiah for both Jew and Gentile. For both Jew and Gentile. Right? And that's why we see that this is so important to Luke later on, is that in the book of Acts, we actually see how Gentiles are brought into God's plan, because the book of Acts is actually a sequel almost, of sorts, to the book of Luke. It's written by the same author. So when we get to Jesus's first sermon here at Nazareth, we're almost getting a kind of snapshot, a glimpse, a kind of thesis statement for what Jesus's ministry looked like. Ultimately, what his kingdom will look like as well. If you notice there in that first line when he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You astute readers of Scripture, when you hear that word good news, you might have some kind of like bell going off in your head, right? Good news here is the word, essentially the word for gospel, right? It's the verbal form for the word gospel. In fact, it's not just the word good news, right? We see that Jesus says here, it's proclaiming good news. So that little phrase, to proclaim good news, is actually a single word. It's a verb, right? Essentially preaching, proclaiming the gospel. What we notice, though, is that Luke isn't emphasizing necessarily, uh, although that's certainly folded into the background and informing what he means by preaching the gospel. He's talking about individual salvation. How he's applying it in this context is how the gospel is lived out in the world, among, in the world around us as well, right? That the good news, the gospel, is not just something that sticks between me and God, but then also drives transformation in the world around us, right? This, and this phrase, good, because this phrase, good, proclaiming good news, it's actually what Gabriel says to Mary in Luke chapter 1 when he talks about how she is going to bear the Messiah, how Jesus is actually going to come. So in the first context it's used, it's used to announce Jesus is coming down from heaven to earth. And when Jesus is using about himself, it's about how, what this good news essentially means for the world. 
So what I love about this passage is how it's not only describing one's individual relationship with God, it's describing how God is enacting that same transformation that we experience as recipients of the gospel and and how we can bring that transformation to the world around us as well. And the idea that personal relationship with God is then reflected in the world around us does not start in the New Testament with Jesus, right? It's all throughout the course of Scripture, We see in Genesis, when sin first enters into the world, that the effects of sin aren't just between Adam and Eve having this fractured relationship with God, right? Because what happens when God asks Adam, hey, did you eat from the fruit that I told you not to? Adam begins to throw Eve under the bus, and he throws God under the bus, (laughs) which is not a smart strategy when you're trying to plead a case for your innocence, but right, it's fractured relationship with God, fractured relationship with his partner, And what we see even is that God then has to slay an animal in order to provide covering, to provide covering for them. So even the created order itself is affected by sin. And we see this actually then play out in the next chapter with Cain and Abel, where just as Adam was sinned against God, now we see a brother murdering his own brother, right? A fractured relationship with God leads to fractures in the world around us as well. In the New Testament, even, the words justice and righteousness are actually within the same semantic domain. That means that their words and their root ideas are often related. And so the image that the language then is providing is that as we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ before God, we then seek out that same righteousness for the world around us. Because righteousness, which is our standing before God, also deals with justice in the world around us. And this is kind of my main point today, is this idea that worship and service are interconnected ideas. That worship and service are interconnected ideas. Worship is never just confined to the walls of a church, but worship within the church catalyzes us in a way that we then engage and serve our, our neighbor. Because if worship simply is just this idea of remaining within the confines of a church building and a church wall, then the church is really no different than any other gathering in a way, right? If I want to hang out with people that I like, with people I get along with, I can do that at other places besides church, right? But when I come to church, I'm experiencing transformation so that I can seek transformation for others as well. Essentially, what it boils down to is this idea right here, is that when Jesus is describing, proclaiming the gospel here in Luke, he's talking about orthodoxy, but not just orthodoxy, which is correct belief. He's also talking about the idea of orthopraxy, which is right conduct, right? Right, correct practice, right? Correct belief leads to correct practice. In seminary, I had this professor who would talk about how there are essentially like two beams of the cross, two beams of the cross, right? And that there's a vertical beam that deals with our reconciliation to God and a horizontal beam that deals with our reconciliation and our relationships towards one another. And so often, unfortunately, throughout the history of the church is that we see this tension where there's this almost struggle and this pull between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? One side is claiming, no, 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 we need orthodox, we need orthodoxy, we need right belief, we need right belief. And the other side is saying, no, no, but what about right conduct? What about right actions, right? 
What Jesus is presenting here is we need both. Right belief informs right conduct. And one of my favorite subjects in my time when I was in high school, my time when I was in Bible college, my time when I was in seminary was history. And so when I went to Bible college and seminary, I then got really, really into church history. I actually wanted to, before I decided to go to seminary and pursue my MDiv, I actually thought, well, maybe I want to go into academia and pursue church history as an option, right? Uh, and so I want to share a little bit of church history with you today because I, lo- I love church history. Church his- when studying church history, we get to see the incredible ways that God has worked through the church, even though the church has often been an imperfect vehicle, that God has graciously worked through his people to enact change in the world. In the 1930s, kind of leading up to and around World War II, there was a German theologian named uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Bonhoeffer was a, he was not only a theologian, he was also a pastor, and he was also a spy. So he wore a lot of different hats, really. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like I'm wearing hats when in the youth group services, I feel like I have to like lead worship and then give a message. I've never had to actually like, you know, be like a military spy or anything like that. So I hope that's not a calling that God has for me, but you know, who knows. Um, A lot of people who have studied Bonhoeffer are aware that At the time in Germany, he was incredibly frustrated with his theological context. Because if you think about Germany, Germany was one of the sort of catalyzing countries for the Protestant Reformation, right? And yet at the time, what he saw was this kind of idea, was this obsession with study of the, with high-level study of the Bible, high-level study of the Bible that had no care or love for their neighbor around him. At this time, we kind of saw, we're seeing the rise of Nazi Germany as well, and Bonhoeffer was one of the few theologians who was actively critiquing the Nazi party, and yet at the same time, a lot of his peers and contemporaries sat passively by, or even affirming the party as well. But what a lot of people don't know is that Bonhoeffer actually also spent time in America. He spent about a year in America and came over to New York's Union Theological Seminary. And when he got to seminary, he was equally unimpressed with the theology in America. Not because he necessarily disagreed it, but he just found that it lacked, that it had that same divide. There's orthodoxy, but there's no orthopraxy. It, was, it wasn't until that one, an African-American classmate of his brought Bonhoeffer to his church in Harlem that Bonhoeffer experiences what he kind of describes as his own sort of transformation. Right? Bonhoeffer saw in the African-American church that he was attending that there was orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Because if you know the the context and history of the African-American church at this time, then you're aware that this is a time where where segregation is kind of at its peak, where African-American churches, especially in this area, are, are... are basically struggling with ideas of injustice, ideas of oppression, right? And yet here, at this small African-American church that he began attending, he saw a Jesus who was advocating for the oppressed. He saw a Jesus who was advocating for the marginalized. He saw a Jesus who was advocating for the poor. Because if you know the history of the African-American church, then you know that this is a church that has endured so, 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 so much in our country. You know that African-American slaves actually had a different translation of the Bible than the one that their masters had. Uh, They call this the slave Bible, and the slave Bible had sections of the Old Testament and New Testament ripped out, right? 
about 90% of the Old Testament was said to be missing. So passage, so about 38 of the 40 chapters in Exodus were removed, right? Uh, 90% of the Old Testament, about 50% of the New Testament, but passages like slaves obey your masters were still there in the New Testament. But passages like Galatians, where it talks about there's neither Jew nor, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, those were ripped out of their Bible. And I think the idea there is that the slave masters knew when they were giving their slaves that Bible that we, need to, we needed to give them an incomplete gospel to justify our treatment of these people. The term justice is such a loaded, loaded, loaded term today. It might bring to mind certain ideologies, certain belief systems. It might bring to mind maybe like an angry Facebook post that we've seen from somebody we maybe don't fully agree with, right? But what we see here in Luke and in the Bible is that justice is not a new idea. Justice is not just a political idea. Justice began 2,000 years ago with Jesus. Because while Jesus is here, we see holiness and justice working together. We see people being transformed and then living out that transformed life. And while it's true that we will never fully obliterate poverty or injustices on this side of eternity, it's also true that we are meant to model the same transformation that's occurred within us within the world today. Um, One of the things that my students know about me is they know that I really like sneakers. I really like shoes. My uh, wife often points out that I have more shoes than her, actually. (laughs) Uh, I know, I know, I know, right? But, and I actually wore these shoes specifically for a reason today. I wore my Air Jordans today, right? And because today there's this culture of, known as sneakerhead culture, sneakerhead culture, right? And so what Nike will do is that they'll do these limited releases of certain Air Jordans, certain Nike shoes, right? And essentially what's going on is that it's a hot ticket item to get one of these shoes. In order to get one of those shoes, you have to download an app called the Sneakers app, and then you kind of enter into a lottery system, and if you enter into the lottery system, then maybe, just maybe, you can have a chance at buying one of their sneakers and shoes. It's a lot of hurdles to jump over just to get a pair of sneakers. And you, the thing is, is that you know someone who loves their sneakers, you know someone who loves their shoes based on how they walk, right? That sneakerheads have a certain walk because there's certain things you can't do with a nice pair of shoes, right? That the, the, one of the cardinal rules of sneakers is called creasing the J's, creasing the shoes. And what's essentially what happens is that as you're walking, right, your toe kind of naturally bends, kind of creating crease at, a crease at the top of the shoes. So what people do to avoid this is you adopt a new style of walking to prevent creases from happening, right? And the goal is essentially to keep your foot completely parallel to the ground so that you don't create a crease. And it's kind of like something like this where there's variations. You can kind of do like a side to side like this. <laughs> you can basically create kind of like a 90 degree angle with your foot to the ground and it's make sure you're landing flat footed every time like this, right? What, you, what we love should naturally affect everything we do, right? When people see, know that we love God, that should naturally be coming out in everything we do, both in how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we speak to one another, and even how we serve people who are completely different from us. 
people who are nothing like us, people who have no, no connection to us, because we've experienced that transformation. And if we claim to love God, if we say we love God, then we'll also love our neighbor as well. We notice that Jesus in Luke 4 talks about, you know, that the gospel is to the poor. And to kind of paint that, I want to go back to, there's two passages in Isaiah that he's re referencing here. Isaiah 58, 6, and then Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. So if you'll go to Isaiah 58 with me really quick before going to Isaiah 61, that would be great. Isaiah 51, verse 6. Is not this the fast that I, have ch that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? And then we go to 61 verses 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. When we see the word poor, it can be really easy for us to immediately think about spiritual poverty. And spiritual poverty is a true thing, right? We all experience spiritual poverty because of a lack of a relationship with God. Spiritual poverty is absolutely true. And Matthew, in, his, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about uh, the idea even of spiritual poverty, right? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Correct? What Luke, though, is talking about, is pointing out here, is that spiritual truths don't necessarily dismiss earthly realities, they don't ignore earthly realities. Spiritual truths actually results in earthly transformation. In the two passages that we just read from Isaiah, Jesus is combining kind of two passages of Isaiah, Isaiah 58.6 and Isaiah 61.1 through 2, right? Th these passages in Isaiah are describing life after Israel's exile. Now, the exile was the sort of deportation and removal of, removal of Israel from the land that they had previously inhabited. And one of the main reasons that Israel had lost the land was because, and what Isaiah is talking about in his context, is the idea of idolatry and injustice. Now, idolatry was not just Israel abandoning the worship of Yahweh. It was not just them abandoning the worship of God. It's that they were worshiping gods kind of of other elements of other cultures to kind of hedged their bets, essentially, for earthly success. Right? So they would worship the god of fertility, right? Which could kind of be similar to the idea of, like, family building for us. Or they would worship the god of at god or goddess of agriculture, right? Kind of like how we tend to sort of, like, prioritize our work sometimes over everything. And those aren't bad things to pray for, by the way. It's not bad to pray for your family, not at all. It's not bad to pray for your job or work, but when we let those things supplant God, they are inhabiting a position that they were never intended to take. And so when Israel inherited the land, they were meant to show the world what it meant to be a people who live after God. And so that's why the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is outlining, right, is outlining how Israel is to conduct themselves in the midst of other, of other cultural contexts to show what it looks like to be a people who live after God. 
The problem is, is that Israel just simply didn't do this, or, or they did it at first, but over the course of a long period of time, began ignoring and failing to do this, actually. Isaiah 58, in the context, is describing true and false fasting, right? True and false fasting, right? Fasting was this kind of just religious, spiritual practice that ancient Israel would take part in, right? And what Isaiah is describing is describing essentially a sort of false fasting. And what makes the fasting false, like we read in verse 6, is not the fasting itself. Israel captures the form and the ritual of fasting correctly. What, they do, what they're also doing, though, is that they are ignoring their neighbor who is in suffering. They're ignoring their neighbor who is oppressed. They're ignoring their neighbor who is under kind of like bondage uh, and oppressive yokes in the world around them as well, right? So in, like, we see, like we just read in Isaiah 58, 6. So what makes the fast illegitimate essentially is not just their worship, right? It's their conduct. It's their lack of orthopraxy essentially. And yet Isaiah 61, which is the primary passage that Jesus read, reads from, he, then he is then announcing that this good news is coming to the poor, that is coming to the poor. Isaiah 61 is describing Jesus is sort of, is describing kind of the messianic kingdom, what life is to look like after exile. And it's essentially what it is, is a removal from what was going on where there's idolatry and injustice and a sort of a transformed culture around them, right? good news to the poor, binding up the brokenhearted, liberty to the captives. And we kind of jump down to verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the people, all who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed." And Jesus kind of takes up this imagery, essentially. Jesus picks this imagery up, and he doesn't just talk about its relevancy for our spiritual lives. He picks it up, and he shows what it looks like here on earth while he lived on earth. Think about, the, think about what happens later on in Luke. If you read Luke's, Luke chapter 4 through 8, 9, or even just the rest of the book as a whole, Jesus is going to forgive what is described as like a sinful woman, most likely a prostitute, someone with a promiscuous sexual history. He, he extends the grace of forgiveness to her in front of a, in front of a religious, crowd of religious leaders. He heals the sick and disabled. And not that's not me sort of advocating like, oh, we need to go out healing people or anything like that. But it's because these were people who would have been considered to have low social standing in ancient Israelite society. He calls a tax collector who, also, who would have been financially, economically rich, but who would have had low, low, low social standing in Jew, traditional Jewish culture. And then he shares a meal with that tax collector and his friends. And when you look at the description of Jesus' disciples in Luke, by the way, Jesus has 12 disciples, which are kind of a callback to the 12 tribes of Israel, right? He brings in a tax collector, and he also has a Jewish zealot. He has a tax collector and a Jewish zealot among his disciples. You would have had a very, very difficult time in first century Judaism finding two people more opposed to each other than a Jewish tax collector and a Jewish zealot. That's because a Jewish tax collector was someone who was collecting money on behalf of the Roman government from his own countrymen in Israel. Right? 
And a Jewish zealot was someone who was trying to essentially overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel. And yet Jesus is saying, by having these two disciples to be amongst his 12, which is a callback kind of to ancient Israel and their 12 tribes, he's saying, this is what my new kingdom looks like. It's the the dividing and breaking of ethnic barriers. It's the dividing and breaking of social barriers, right? it's It's resulting in transformed lives, which leads to transformed relationships. Often when it comes to engaging the poor, there's this idea that often comes up that can be a barrier for what, it, for what it means to serve the poor. And it's this phrase that maybe you've heard before, God helps those who help themselves. Right? God helps those who help themselves. And the, I think the original intent behind it is not necessarily bad. Right? The original intent behind that idea is not necessarily bad. Right? That we should give every effort in our walk with God, right? Paul actually makes that image. You're like striving in the faith, right? Disciplining his body, right? Uh, Making every effort to be more and more like Christ. But how I've sometimes seen, seen this line applied and used is a sort of justification to not see the poor as my neighbor. The Barna Group is an organization that studies churches and Christians to kind of figure out the role of faith in America. And as one of those weird baseball fans who likes advanced stats, uh, this is kind of in my wheelhouse a little bit, right? Um, at one point, Barna did a poll asking, asking people, is the phrase, God helps those who help themselves in the Bible, right? Is the phrase, God helps those who help themselves in the Bible, 82% of people believe that God helps those who help themselves is a verse in the Bible. The problem with that is that it is not. But here's the thing. They also polled people who asked people, do you identify as born-again Christians? And the born-again Christians did better, actually. They did better. They knew that this is not in the Bible. Because only 81% of born-again Christians <laughs> thought that God helps those who help themselves was in the, as a verse in the Bible. Now, do you know where you can find a phrase or a phrase similar to that? You can find it in Stoic Greek philosophy, which is not Christian, and you can find it in the Quran as well. It always seems strange to me that as Christians, we would pride ourselves in this idea that God helps those who help themselves as a core Christian value. Yes, the Bible teaches us to strive in our faith, Yes, the Bible teaches us to discipline ourselves and make every effort. But when I read the Bible, the primary core message is not that God will help me if I just work hard enough. When I read the Bible, the primary message that I'm seeing is that I received grace through faith and not through my own works. And I received that grace through faith so that because none of my works are capable of saving me and so that I could not simply just boast in my own works as well. If God helped us, God helped us essentially and rescued us when we were in our sin nature and we wanted nothing to do with God. God loved us and helped us when we were completely just incapable of helping ourselves. If God operated on the idea that he would only help us if we helped ourselves, I think this room would probably be completely empty right now. 
And so in a similar fashion and way, when we see people who are struggling, who are oppressed, who are poor, who are, just go, who are experiencing the effects of poverty as well, our attitude shouldn't be, well, maybe they just need to work harder and help themselves. Our attitude should be, I have been the recipient of generous, generous, generous grace. How can I live out that generous, generous grace in my relationship with this person? If you notice in our Isaiah and Luke passage, there's this mention of liberty. And liberty here being mentioned is not necessarily biblical. It is biblical liberty. Sorry, I didn't mean to misspeak. Um, Biblical liberty is not necessarily the idea of individual rights and freedoms. Liberty, that's more of an idea that comes from the Enlightenment and under John Locke. The liberty that Jesus is talking about here and that Isaiah is referencing is referenced to the Hebrew word yovel. And so New Testament scholars see this as a reference to the book of Leviticus in an event known as the year of Jubilee. So if you have your Bibles, go to Leviticus 25. You know, you know, some of you know Leviticus because if you're like me, it's when you started to try and read the Bible all the way through, Leviticus is where you kind of ran into a big, big roadblock. You made it through Genesis, okay, you power through Exodus, and then when you got to Leviticus, you just, you lost steam like me. Um, to those of you who are able to keep going, more power to you. Uh, <laughs> I, I am really, really impressed with your willpower. Um, Leviticus 25, starting in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of seven years. You shall count seven weeks of years. Seven times seven years. So that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. It's a long-winded way of saying 49 years, basically. Right? We, we, we're seeing why I lost steam when I got to Leviticus right now. Right? Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field." Now, the significance of the number seven there that's being mentioned is a reference to the Sabbath, right? Israel essentially observed this practice called the Sabbath, where modeling the days of creation, on the seventh day, they would rest as God rested. If you read the prior passage, every seven years, Israel was essentially supposed to take like a super Sabbath, where where they would essentially cease from their work. Could you imagine if every seven years we just like stopped working at our jobs? saying, oh, sorry, I can't come into work today. It's a Sabbath year, so I'm not coming in from January 1st until January 1st the next year. It's a pretty radical idea, right? And then every 49 years, you get this like super duper duper Sabbath, right? Which is known as the year of Jubilee. And essentially what happens here is that, is that, um, sorry, Essentially, what happens here is that people who may have lost property, people who may have lost land, would have their land then returned back to them. 
They could have lost this land due to financial struggles. They could have lost this land because they had to sell their land because maybe their business took a bad turn. And even slaves actually, and note that Old Testament slavery is not the same as like American kind of like chattel slavery. Old Testament slavery was a way to sort of pay off debts in the Old Testament where people would sell kind of their services themselves into debt slavery to pay off a debt. But those slaves, whether the debt was paid off or not, would be released in the year of Jubilee. Now, these sort of feasts and festivals in the Old Testament can be really, really strange to our context, especially here in 2021. But it's important to note that these feasts and festivals and celebrations, they were part of the worship structure of Israel. It was part of actually their worship, much like in how we, when we worship, we have kind of an order of worship. We have songs, we have prayer, we have an opening of, the, of Scripture, and we have closing worship. Israel, in their formal worship, had feasts and festivals. And for Israel's formal worship is, built, is essentially built in a worship that has social implications for the most marginalized members of their community. Something interesting, though, is that there's no historical record of Israel ever observing the year of Jubilee. You would think that something this big that happened every 50 years, think about if you were a debt slave, right? And you had to sell yourself as an adult into debt slavery. This would be like a once in a lifetime event where you could kind of turn around the fortunes of your family. You could kind of like stop the generational effects of poverty for your family. This would be something that you would celebrate, look forward to, anticipate. And yet there's no historical record of Israel ever recognizing the Jubilee. But just because there's no historical record, it doesn't mean that this wasn't a real idea. Isaiah is referencing it. Jesus is even referencing it as well. What we do know is that one of the reasons that Israel is go goes into the exile is because they essentially stopped honoring and observing the Sabbath. They stopped practicing rest. So when Jesus comes and say that this is the year of the Lord, Lord's favor, he is saying this jubilee, this rest, it's here and available for us today. Now, Jesus doesn't literally mean for us to stop working for a year, but what he is saying is that his kingdom will be known by principles of jubilee. His kingdom will be known by a worship that's not just contained to the four walls of a church building, but is seen in our relationships to, with one another as well. It will be shown in radical generosity and love for the lowest members of our society. I want to share and close with a couple of jubilee principles with you, right, uh, as we get, get, uh, kind of come to the end of our message. Um, the first one is the idea of li listening. The first jubilee principle is the idea of listening, right? When it comes to serving in a context that's different in our own, especially when it's to those who might be poorer than us, who might have less than us, it's really easy for us to sort of look at what we have and look at what someone else has and think that, well, they need to follow us because clearly I have my life together, right? But we know that Jesus doesn't measure people's righteousness and values based on their income, right? And so what we would actually do how we could actually better serve people is by simply listening to what those problems and issues are. Uh, my wife, Kelly, when she hosted short-term mission teams, they would assign them homework. They would assign them books to read so they could learn about the community. And she could always tell which groups did the homework and reading and which ones didn't. 
because the groups that didn't do the reading would come in with a lot of ideas. Like, have you ever tried this? Have you ever tried this? What about this? But the groups that had done the reading came in and asking, what can we do to serve you? Because they knew that the ministry would be there, that was there well before they arrived would be there long after they left. The second Jubilee principle is to find rest. The reason that we serve others is that they can experience that eternal rest that Jesus offers. But in our fervor to have others experience rest, I think we often get a little overexcited and we forget to find rest ourselves. How can others be experiencing rest if we ourselves are not resting? Wanting to serve our community is hard. Wanting to serve our community is difficult. It's emotional. It's taxing. And yet, it can always feel like there's more and more and more to do. But when we rest, we remind ourselves that God is more than capable of accomplishing his work without us. And that we're wholly incapable of simply doing it on our own. And the last Jubilee principle is the idea of worship. Worship that moves beyond the walls of the church. Worship that catalyzes us into action to serve our neighbor. Worship that essentially lets us know who Jesus is so that we can make him known as well. Uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I have a little picture I want to show you here. Uh, yeah. You can tell this is a really old picture because I'm about like 15 pounds lighter and there's like a really bad Instagram filter on it. So you can tell it's like from 2012. Um, I think it's like Kelvin or something like that. Uh, and I remember I was serving at this ministry. This is actually where I met my wife, Kelly. It was called Sunshine Gospel Ministries. It was on the south side of Chicago. And this neighborhood kind of filled every preconceived notion and stereotype you could think about under-resourced and underdeveloped communities, right? Dropout rates in high school were over 70%. I, uh, there was a lot of food scarcity. I remember I had to take a train about 30 plus minutes just to get basic groceries. And that was as a single college guy. Imagine being like a single mom trying to feed multiple members of your household while working a full-time job, having to go 30 minutes outside of your neighborhood just to buy groceries, right? I knew a high school student who was only a year or two younger than me, who was working a job, which isn't that strange, but he wasn't working a job like our high school students work, where they work to save up money for a car, to have a little extra spending money with their friends. He was working to buy school supplies for his younger brother and to help his family pay the bills. Another thing, my wife and I would drop off this group of students every week, but we would drop them off at a different apartment complex all throughout the city and neighborhood. These students essentially didn't know where they were kind of going to kind of be sleeping week to week to week. And so one thing that Sunshine did is that they, would ho they had this tradition of hosting a Christmas store every year. And the idea of a Christmas store to an under-resourced community sounds a little counterintuitive, right? Uh, but how this came about was through conversations they had with local members of the community. They sat down with the members of the community and asked, how can we serve you? And they, the community essentially said, you know that thing you do where you have people come from churches outside of our neighborhood and they drop off Christmas presents and then we never see them again? That's actually a really, really hard moment for me and my family. It's really hard to have someone kind of drop something off who knows nothing about me, knows nothing about my kids, to be the one who delivers that joy to my kids, and then not see these people, and they're just kind of in and out of our lives. So what Sunshine decided to do, essentially, what, and, what, and so what Sunshine essentially decided to do was open up a Christmas store. What they would do is that they would uh, have students make a wish list of gifts that they wanted, 
the, uh, and so that way they're not getting gifts that you would get from a Dollar Tree or like the dollar section at Target, but actual gifts that they wanted for Christmas, right? And they would, Sunshine would send that to their ministry partners in other churches, uh, other individuals that they knew who would then buy these gifts. And then once they got the gifts, they would sell these items at 25% of the retail price. So at 25% of the retail price, the parents are able to provide a gift that their, parent, that their student will love right, at a cost that's not going to break the bank for them. And then what Sunshine would essentially do with that money is be able to bless other families who might have had additional financial needs throughout the holidays. By listening and serving their community, by, by simply listening and serving their community, Sunshine was able to provide rest to a source of anxiety during the holiday season and be, show what it means to worship beyond the walls of a church. I want to challenge us today that, like I said, poverty will never be eradicated on this side of eternity. It will never be eradicated in our lifetime. But maybe one thing I would like to challenge us to do today is to just listen more. Listen more for where those cries of, for where those cries of the brokenhearted, of the marginalized, of people lower on our social ladder are. And listen for how God would want us to worship in those contexts because Jesus is calling us there. Not because we're bringing Jesus there, but because that's where he's already at work. I'm going to, uh, let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, for the fact that um, you are a God who doesn't treat us based on how we act or what we deserve, Lord, but you are a God who operates based on generous, generous grace. And I pray that as recipients of your generous grace, that we would be willing to see people as you see them, see them as your image bearers who need to experience your transformation as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.